back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Oge Chibo. And I'm Emma Metter. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in the field of public health and outside of it. Today, we sat down with Dr. Mary Charlton, who is an associate professor in the epidemiology department here at the College of Public Health. We'll be discussing the 2020 Cancer in, in Iowa report and an exciting collaboration that she had with the IDPH on an ovarian cancer study. So let's get right into this week's episode. Okay, so today we have um, Dr. Charlton here with us. So Dr. Charlton, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Um, we also have Emma, which is my co-host here today with us. Hi, thank you. Going to go straight into the questions for today. So our first question is, what inspired you to step foot into the field of public health, specifically cancer epidemiology? Okay, well, as most things I think that happened in my life, it was fairly accidental. I would like to say it was a very purposeful path, but um, I went to nursing school here at the University of Iowa uh, I was the only person in my nursing school class who did not, who was not excited at all about going over to the hospital and doing the clinical part. Um, I loved the classes, and I especially loved the one research class that we took. And I was the only one who loved that research class that we took. So I kind of knew back then that um, I was probably a little bit different from my peers. Uh, and then I was really fortunate that, because um, I really didn't know much about public health, and uh, right about the time I was realizing that probably nursing was not the thing I was going to be able to do for the next 40 some years, um, an old friend that I grew up with in Omaha and played soccer with came to school at the University of Iowa to get a master's degree in biostatistics. And I didn't even know what that was, but she contacted me um, to get together when she moved to Iowa City and she kind of introduced me to a lot of people who were students in epidemiology and biostatistics. And I thought, wow, I really I'm really interested in this field and this is something I would like to pursue. So um, that's right when the College of Public Health came out of the College of Medicine and so I was um, kind of one of the earlier students in the new, uh, what was then a new College of Public Health. Um, oh sorry, in your cancer epidemiology part of your question. Um, I really just enjoyed Epi 1, um, which at that time was taught by Dr. Lynch, who has since been my mentor uh, for a lot of my career, and he ran the, the cancer registry and was the PI of the Ag Health study and had been the PI of a big radon study. Uh, I just loved his examples as they related to cancer, um, and it was just something I was always really interested in. Um, after I finished my master's degree, I went to work in the Department of Family Medicine as a research assistant and learned about, they were doing a lot of studies about uh, disparities in cancer screening between urban and rural um, people and how to improve screenings among rural populations. So I kind of got interested in that aspect um, so when I came back to the University of Iowa, um, I was immediately interested in working with uh, Dr. Lynch and cancer registry and looking at rural urban disparities in uh, cancer prevention, screening, and control. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing. That's a great story. Um, and I would just like to say congratulations on your publishing of the Iowa 2020 Cancer Report. And can you tell us a little bit about the work you accomplished that went into this report? Sure. Uh, well, it's really a big team effort to get that report out each year. Um, we take the we look at all the previous um, number incidents and mortality numbers. Um, we kind of put our heads together and think about what's you know what current events could be uh, impacting cancer trends. 
and then we project out what the cancer trends will be or the cancer rates will be for the following year. Um, so we do that, uh, Dr. Lynch and I and uh, Dr. West over at the registry. Um, we've also put in some new features like showing the counts of uh, cancer survivors by county in Iowa. Um, we hope that people, um, different community organizations and public health uh, organizations will use that information to understand how many people are li out living in the community that have a history of cancer. And we can do that because the cancer registry data goes back to 1973. Um, so we can't really account for people kind of coming into the state um, that weren't diagnosed here, but it gives us a pretty good idea of, of how uh, large the cancer um, survivor population is in Iowa. Um, and then each year we feature a special, either a certain type of cancer, a certain population, a certain exposure. Um, and this year we did ovarian cancer because we have quite a few studies going on in that realm. Um, and that's another one where there's some, uh, looks like there's some rural urban disparities in um, terms of who makes it to a gynecologic oncologist, which is the type of provider that's specially trained to treat ovarian cancer uh, and can generally get the best outcomes. Um, so that's why we chose ovarian cancer. And then going off of that, um, during your investigation, did you notice any significant or specific trends regarding disparities or health equity? I know you just touched on that a little bit, but if you could elaborate. Sure. Yeah. Um, Dr. Lynch had been invited um, went back when he was uh, PI of the registry by the CDC to participate in a study with, it was Iowa, Missouri, and Kansas were the cancer registries that all participated in this um, ovarian cancer patterns of care study. And it definitely looked like there were some disparities in terms of who is getting referred to a gynecologic oncologist, who is actually making it to a gynecologic oncologist. Um, so we saw that in the data, um, definitely. And uh, my PhD student, Kristen Weeks, recently published a paper uh, from that data set showing that rural uh, people in rural areas were more likely to present with ovarian cancer at stage four, um, advanced stage, compared to their urban counterparts. Um, so we saw a lot of that in there. This year's report, which I think, uh, I don't want to jump ahead too much to your other questions, but this year's report is going to focus specifically on cancer disparities by race. Um, so that's something that we're going to be looking into very closely. Um, sometimes it's difficult to do for selected cancers. Ovarian cancer is one of them. We, don't, uh, we tend in Iowa at least not to see a very large non-white population that gets ovarian cancer, um, but certainly in other cancers that there are some definite definite likely disparities that we think we'll find. And so we wanted to dedicate the whole report to the, uh, to the equity um, of what we see in cancer, both overall and in the major cancers uh, that affect islands. All right, thank you so much for that. Um, how do you think the Iowa 2021 cancer report will look like? I mean, the 2020 report listed 18,700 new invasive cancers. If you could make a prediction, do you think the pandemic might exacerbate or decrease this number? And how might health inequity play a role in the distribution of these cases? That's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, two of the four of our big cancers in Iowa and in, in most states are breast and uh, colorectal cancer. And those are ones that are often diagnosed through screening, uh, screening exams, um, colonoscopies, mammographies. So I think the pandemic has caused a lot of people to decide, unless I really need medical care for some kind of acute issue, I'm not going to the doctor. Um, so I think, I guess if I had to make a prediction, and I probably will <laughs> when we are doing our next um, Cancer in Iowa report, 
I would imagine that we will see a dip in our 2020 numbers for diagnoses of breast and colorectal cancer. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that they're not there. So I would imagine in then later years, as we come out of this blasted pandemic and people go back to the doctor and get their mammographies and colonoscopies, that cancer will be detected. Unfortunately, I think it will be detected at a later stage. Um, so that's the fear is that this delay of screening is going to put off, it, it's going to put off diagnosis until a later stage when cancers get more difficult to treat. Mm -hmm. So I do think we'll see either a leveling off or even a dip in our numbers and then uh, a swift rebound um, once people are going back to the doctor. So then my dad numbers and in the future look like an increase in probably like mortality rates due to cancer. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's something we'll be watching very closely. And I, I think part of your question also is about inequity. And I, I think, unfortunately, that will play a role given the, the demographics of essential workers um, or people who already don't have very good access to the healthcare system, either because of insurance reasons, mistrust reasons, um, unable to, to get off of work reason, you know, all kinds of reasons. I think it will disproportionately affect the underrepresented uh, minority populations um, African Americans, Latinx populations. Um, I think we're going to need to look at that very closely. And even now, even with the pandemic still going on, I think we need to do everything we can to encourage people to still get some of those screenings. Um, understanding the risk is not zero of going into the to a healthcare provider um, to have those done. So I think we have to kind of think about the big picture, but but knowing that the risk may be greater uh, for people in terms of mortality if they don't get some of these select screenings. Uh, and we don't make sure that they catch the cancer as soon as they can. Then when looking at um, surveillance, so cancer surveillance, especially in Iowa, do you think there'll be a difference when you're looking at if the cause of death in a cancer patient was due to COVID-19 or if they had COVID-19 and they died due to cancer, like, do you think there'll be a difference in the way that this data is being reported for like cancer surveillance? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky question, and I do really wish my mentor Chuck Lynch were here because uh, he is like the cause of death guru when it comes to reporting and, and interpreting that. I do believe both cancer and COVID would show up on the death certificate, you know, one being a cause of death, one being a contributing um, cause. Okay. Um, I do think, I'm hoping that we can work with IDPH to be able to combine maybe registries of people who have had COVID and people who have had cancer, so we can do a really nuanced analysis of what's going on with that. When we look at cancer mortality, we often look at overall mortality and cancer-specific mortality. Okay. Um, so if there were a lot of people who had cancer that also got COVID before they died of cancer, you know, they, they may have been dying of cancer, but then got, got COVID. And so that became the, um, the cause of death. We'd still know that they had the cancer. And so it's kind of trying to figure out how to account for that and to adjust for some things to see how that, uh, how that all played out. But it's really interesting. And I, I would love to talk to people um, in immunology and, and infectious disease to really kind of understand, um, you know, a lot of the things that are some of the issues that, that killed people with COVID was this uh, intense immune response. And sometimes mm -hmm. that, that kind of got out of control. Um, so what does that look like in immunosuppressed person. Are they protected from that? But then because they're so immune suppressed, then the virus just gets out of control and works in other ways. Um, that I'm not sure. And I think there's a lot of studies going on right now um, related to both cancer and COVID. So I'm hoping um, that as more studies emerge, we'll understand how best to analyze that. But I think that's a really good question and one we're going to have to be thinking about in the coming years. 
Yes. All right. Thank you. Yeah, that was very interesting. Thank you for sharing. And I would just like to give you another congratulations on receiving a grant to collaborate with the Iowa Department of Public Health on an ovarian cancer study. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about what this research is entailing? Sure. Um, I already talked a little bit about how it seems like in, in Iowa, there's a fair amount of people, not, not an overwhelming majority by any means, but still not zero, uh, still a, a substantial percentage of women in Iowa who never get to a gynecologic oncologist um, for, for treatment of their, uh, particularly surgery for their uh, ovarian cancer. So we're working with the Iowa Department of Public Health and a couple other sites that were awarded the same grant to figure out what strategies would mitigate this issue. Uh, so again, my PhD student, Kristen Weeks, did some interviews with both um, OBGYN providers and some hospital administrators, and then also patients who we could see from our cancer registry records that it looked like they never went to a hospital that had a gynecologic oncologist. So we were able to recruit those, uh, those women who were still alive uh, we certainly didn't want to make them feel during those interviews like they did the wrong thing. So we, we didn't come out and say, why did you not go to a gynecologic oncologist? But we kind of talked more about how did you make your decision about where to go and what factors played into that and what barriers did you have and, and getting care and different things like that. And it was really interesting between the provider interviews and the patient interviews, the providers kind of perceived that the, especially, you know, rural and older patients would have all kinds of trouble getting to like a large academic medical center like the University of Iowa um, because six of the seven gynecological gynecologic oncologists we have in the state are here and one of the seven is in Des Moines so they're only located in, in large urban centers so a lot of the um, referring providers thought well it's, it would be too hard for them to get there they'd be overwhelmed um, it's uh, just thought that there was a lot of logistic challenges for them but then when we asked the, the patients, you know, in our sort of roundabout way to make sure that they didn't feel like we thought they did anything wrong, they basically kind of came out and said, I went, over, I went wherever they told me to go, and I didn't have any barriers, and if they would have told me to go somewhere else, I would have gone somewhere else, basically. Um, so they put a lot of trust into that referring provider and trusted that that person was going to send them to the very best place where they could get care. Um, so they just never really questioned it, and they didn't say... I wouldn't have gone to the University of Iowa, it's too big, or I wouldn't have gone to Mayo. They don't say things like that, or I couldn't have traveled, or my insurance wouldn't have covered it. We specifically asked about some of those barriers that the providers had mentioned, and they said, no, I, I could have done whatever I needed to do. That was interesting. So we're trying to take um, what we learned from that and develop some education materials, both for patients and for those referring providers, to say, here's what we learned through talking with patients. They really need a strong recommendation to go to see a gynecologic oncologist, for these myriad of reasons, and um, here's how you make the referral. We tried to uh, work with the people here and in Des Moines to really understand that process in case that was where the perceived holdup was, that there was some kind of issue with the referral process. Um, so we've tried to educate them about that. And then we're doing a series of CME webinars, both OBGYNs and primary care providers across the state uh, could take to kind of learn more about why is it so important to refer ovarian cancer patients to gynecologic oncologists, um, talking about the interviews that we did, different things like that to really educate them. So those are kind of the main strategies that we're employing through that grant. All right. Thank you so much for that. So actually, that was really detailed, which I bet our <laughs> to appreciate as much as we did. The next question is, what is the most pressing issue within your field you would like to solve? <laughs> wow, that's a hard question, but uh, I think... 
for me and just kind of for my whole area of research. I think about how we spend, our country invests billions of dollars to figure out what is the best course of care for cancer patients. You know, how much money we spend on drug trials um, and all different types of clinical trials and observational studies to figure out what is the best, what is a standard of care for cancer patients. So what I would kind of like to solve is we're going to spend all the time, money, effort, everything to invest in what is the right thing for them to get. And we need to figure out why people then don't get it. <laughs> so uh, kind of the next step of where do things break down and why doesn't everybody get what they're supposed to get after we've you know, invested all the time and, and effort into doing the research to figure out where, what they're supposed to get. So that's really what I would like to solve is where are those breakdowns and why does it differ by population and what can we do uh, to reduce those barriers and make it so that everybody can get what they're supposed to get. And if they choose not to for their own personal reasons, then that's fine. Always want them to have the option to get uh, what they should be getting. Thank you. I think that's a great answer and a topic that definitely deserves a lot of attention and more recognition than what it has. So thank you for that. Um, and then our last question is, what is one thing you thought you knew but was later wrong about? There are about a zillion of those. Uh, but if I focus it on cancer epidemiology, um, kind of along the lines to what I was just talking about, I guess when I went into this and started um, some of my earlier studies, I just thought that people who've been diagnosed with cancer want all the information that they can possibly get so that they can make an informed decision. I thought they'd be, you know, running to the internet, asking around, getting second opinions, doing everything they can to get all the information that they need to make the best decision for them. Um, and I learned I was very wrong about that. Uh, there, there are some populations who do that, and uh, I specifically think of breast cancer um, patients who you know, there's a, a ton of information online. There's a lot of um, support groups and support structures and everybody's heard of Komen and there's a lot of awareness about that. Um, also just the demographics of women who get breast cancer, they tend to be upper socioeconomic status uh, type people and a little bit younger than a lot of the uh, other patients with other types of cancer. Um, so they're a little bit of a different group. But outside of breast cancer, um, and particularly what I study, one of the cancers I study a lot is rectal cancer and ovarian cancer uh, recently, um, hearing from both of those groups that they've just been given a really overwhelming, devastating cancer diagnosis. They don't want to go to online. They're afraid they'll be scared by what they see out there. They just want to know that that person who told them they have cancer is going to send them to the best place where they need to go and people are going to handle it from there because they think, well, I don't know anything about this cancer. Hopefully these people do. They just put all their trust um, in that referral system to get to the right place. And they're not, not as interested in going and doing a lot of research or getting a lot of second opinions or questioning the opinion of their doctor or asking how many of these procedures do you do a year? And you know, those types of things that, the, the main demographic of the older uh, population who get cancer aren't going to do those things and don't want to do those things. So while I still really believe in the area of research and the need for more research and patient engagement and helping people make informed decisions and shared decision making, um, where I've sort of landed in my research is I really want to make an, have an impact on that referral process because I don't think people understand how it actually works. And I don't know that um, I'm sure doctors understand that people are really relying on them, but may not know how little outside activity they're doing beyond that referral. 
um, they're essentially mostly directed to these places by them. So kind of wanted to, to help influence that process and make sure that the rural complex patients and the patients who would really benefit from coming to places like the University of Iowa or Mayo for a really hard surgery can do that and know that they should do that. Um, on the flip side, um, a lot of providers have said, I refer my patients to places like the University of Iowa and I never see them again. They're gone. They don't come back. You know, that's hard for them to travel and get all their care there. They'd be happier locally. Um, so I do think that hospitals need to work together more and send those patients back then so they can get chemotherapy and radiation close to home where their family can support them or they don't have to travel as much. Um, and I think that all that communication between health systems is not ideal right now and does not support that. So that's kind of the area that I... Um, I'm trying to get into with my research is how can we extend the resources and expertise here at places like the University of Iowa to help make local hospitals better, build that trust relationship between them so that they're referring the right patients here and we're sending them right back so they can get a lot of their treatment close to home. All right, thank you. Um, so from what you were saying or what I was hearing, it kind of seems like you're really interested in social determinants of health aspect of getting the patients the care that they need and like looking at other factors that might affect why they are not you know following mm -hmm. their referral in the first place all right i think we need more of that actually because <laughs> a lot of people don't really know how the role that social determinants of health plays in all our lives and like the huge impact i mean for all our like any health income at all yeah. but yeah thank you for talking about that um I think that was the last question that we, yeah, that's the last question that we have on our list. Um, thank you okay. so much for coming on the pod today. It was sure. so interesting to hear what you're working on and what you, you've worked on and what you will be working on. Mm -hmm. so, well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. It's always nice to talk about my area of interest and hopefully uh, inspire some people maybe to um, come down the same path that I have because it's been a great, uh, it's been a great area of research and there's just so much opportunity and so much need uh, for it. So yeah. I hope others will join me and contact me if they have any questions or want to learn any more. So that's the end of the episode for today. Thanks again to Dr. Charlton for taking the time to come on the pod this week. We hope you find this podcast as informative and interesting as we did. All right. So talking about how interesting this podcast was, Emma, what did you think? Yeah, I thought this was such an informative interview. I didn't know a lot about cancer epidemiology and the rates of it within Iowa. So I thought it was so interesting to hear that and also just how they really look for those disadvantaged populations and groups of individuals and see how they're receiving cancer care and their thoughts of it so they can really improve upon all of those inequalities and disadvantages people are facing. So really everyone, no matter their socioeconomic status, can have the same care of cancer treatment that they all deserve. So I thought it was so interesting and informative. Right. Um, same. I also really enjoyed the part where she talked about reporting the survival rates of mm -hmm. cancer patients. I think at least that's kind of like a hopeful glance or a hopeful way to look at it because usually it's um, incidents, prevalence, mortality. Mm -hmm. You never see, okay, how many people actually survived? So I, I that one actually really struck out to me. And then when she then started to talk about her research or what she hopes to see, and then talking about the whole social determinants of health, which 
I think, okay, so for our listeners who don't know what that means, social determinants of health is conditions in which people are born into, you live, you work, you play. So where you live, the kind of support system you have around you, just all the little things you probably don't really pay attention to. Well, how do all those factors come together to affect your own health outcome? So I think that's something even in medicine, like we need to really look at because once someone comes into, into the hospital for a treatment at that moment, you give them what they need, but then they go back to the same environment that they were in the first place. So then they're coming back again for the same exact thing. So I definitely think that's worthwhile. And it's very interesting. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a great point you brought up. And I also thought it was so interesting how she's talking about in the future reports for next year's and probably a couple of years on, they'll be looking at the correlation of COVID-19 and how COVID-19 has affected not only cancer rates, but the morbidity and mortality of them. So mm-hmm. I think that'll be very interesting to look at. And I wonder, how that, years. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to look like actually oh, I just feel like that's way more work but it, it is, we'll see we'll see I hope it goes good I hope it's not as bad as we're seeing so all right we're out of here so you can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health or on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Let us know what you thought about this episode in series at cphgradambassador at uiowa.edu. That is cph-g-r-a-d-a-m-b-a-s-s-a-d-o-r at uiowa.edu. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Oge Chibo and Emma Metter. This episode was written by Oge Chibo and Emma Metter. It was edited and produced by Steve Saunier. Thank you, Dr. Charlton, for coming on the pod this week. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. See you next week. Happy social distancing. Stay safe and always remember to have that uncomfortable conversation.